Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. So welcome, Julie, to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. Good to see you today on this Friday. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been uh, looking forward to talking with you. You know, you and I have known each other for oh, probably, what, four or five years, maybe? Yeah, I think probably met you when I moved to Reno, which was six years ago now. Yeah. Five years ago. Five years. Time flies when you're building startups and having fun, right? (laughs) Yeah, it goes by really quickly. (laughs) That is definitely true. Yeah, I remember those days wildly. You know, they were just wild days, ups and downs and late nights and long days and just all of that. So I always appreciate you taking some time to, to break away from running your company to, to talk to me. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, tell me a little bit about your background. I mean, I, I don't know much more than, you know, just your role at Panty Drop, but uh, you went to MIT. Kind of tell me how, tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah. So I studied mechanical engineering at MIT and I loved engineering classes and I'm really glad that's what I majored in. But I graduated in 2008 And, you know, when I was in school, I had a couple internships, summer internships in industry. And it was those experiences that helped me realize that what I was actually more excited about uh, than, you know, the nuts and bolts of how we make a product fit together was the business context around what we were doing. So why were we building this product in the first place? Who was going to buy it? you know, what What needs was it solving for them and, and thinking about those kind of bigger picture business customer and market questions. So as I was graduating, I realized that I didn't want to go work in industry as, as an engineer. And I ended up choosing to go into business consulting. <laughs> so when I graduated, I became a management consultant for a few years, which was a really great experience to kind of get my career off the ground. Um, I worked for a company called Accenture, Oh yeah, big. Yeah, they're they're a pretty big firm, and they do a lot of IT and technology industry work, which was essentially how I got my feet wet in the tech industry. I ended up doing a lot of product management work through them, and basically realized that product management was like tech, you know, (laughs) tech product management was this kind of area of passion for me because it blended you know, the design and creativity and thinking about those customer and product questions with, you know, technical uh, experience as well, because I was always working with an engineering team. And so basically, that's kind of how I got my feet wet in the tech industry and realized that I loved building and launching new products that had some sort of technical component to them. And of course, then, you know, realized what I actually wanted to do was go work in startups um, because startups are, you know, they move really quickly and in big corporations, Accenture's clients were, you know, fortune 500 companies, really, really big corporations, which was a great place to learn from. But I really kind of craved that faster moving, um, smaller company experience where you could more directly see what you were working on. And it kind of came to fruition a little bit faster. Um, so moved to San Francisco and started working in uh, startups. Actually took a little bit of a detour before I did that. I traveled for a couple months in South America and then moved to Tahoe and became a ski bum for a season. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a great thing to do. I saw you were like the head of the MIT ski team or something like that, or alumni ski team or something. <laughs> yeah, so I was on the ski team in college. And 
stayed, you know, involved with the team after I graduated and uh, served essentially as their alumni communications and fundraising, alumni fundraising support uh, after I graduated for a That's few years. That's great. Well, that's how we attract all the good entrepreneurs. We get them, we tease them by, you know, coming to Tahoe and then we like rope them into coming down to Reno. So it, it planned worked yeah. perfectly in your case. So yeah, yeah exactly. And, you know, and so then basically ended up getting a job in San Francisco, moved to San Francisco, lived there for about four years, worked in a few different tech startups, again, kind of product and marketing roles and, and leading teams in those areas. And then eventually, you know, came to the realization and the decision to start my own company. And part of that was actually, you know, kind of first started the idea at a startup weekend Tahoe event. Um, so Love it. You know, kind of, it was all wrapped up in this idea of like, I want to start my own business. I want to start it in this area because I love this area and I want it to be a place where I can live and do the type of work that I love doing. Um, and at the time it was pre-pandemic, so no one was working from home. <laughs> yeah. And not a lot of people were doing that from up here. I think it's it's changed a lot in the past year, but wanted to start the business here. And yeah, that, you know, that's how we got going. Wow. And and now, well, you know, it's I've always been curious, what was the inspiration for your company Panty Drop? Which I love the name, by the way. I mean, it's so funny because every time, I, every investor presentation I've ever seen you give, it just brings smiles to people's face, right? So I just yeah. love that because you've got, it's like disarming immediately, which is a big part of, you know, getting investors spot in, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's memorable, right? Whether you like it or you don't like it, you will you will remember it, which I'm yes. okay with. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Especially in consumer companies, you want yeah. something that's memorable. What was your inspiration? I mean, did it really, I mean, did it really come out of a startup weekend? Did you go in there with this concept and then yeah i mean the concept has certainly evolved in the years that we've been working on it but yeah basically you know wanted a better way to shop for underwear i don't personally like shopping and underwear is something that you probably should be buying somewhat regularly and so it was just kind of thinking like you know i wish there were a better way to shop for underwear and then essentially started exploring the problem you know, kind of the product manager in me was like, okay, let's start talking with lots of women about how they shop for underwear and what the challenges are and kind of see where the product opportunity lies in that space. And, you know, and I think this is also one area where um, I'm really grateful that I was sort of doing this work outside of, you know, a major metropolitan area like LA, San Francisco, or New York, because I ended up speaking with a lot of plus size women. And, you know, I heard, and I kind of knew, again, I'm not, my background's not in fashion. It's not apparel. I wouldn't consider myself like a particularly fashionable person. Um, so like, you know, I'd once in a while, like buy clothes, but you know what I, and so what I heard as I kind of started exploring this with friends and family and coworkers was that, you know, there was this really big gap between supply and demand for larger women. So two thirds of the population are size are larger than an extra large. And I think the average size of a, a woman in the United States is like a, an 18. And that means that she can't shop at Victoria's Secret because Victoria's Secret doesn't make anything larger than an extra large. And, and so, you know, moreover, I think more, moreover than just not being able to find the products, you know, it, there was a lot of stigma, negative emotions associated with shopping, and especially something like intimates and lingerie. And, you know, I kind of just wanted to, the more I heard about the problem, the more it didn't make sense to me on an analytical level, but also on like a societal and an emotional level, where it's just like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, how did this situation happen? You know, why is it still happening today? 
And so basically decided that, you know, we were going to make an inclusive intimates company and really build it from the ground up to serve, uh, to serve a plus size audience. Cause I think a lot of companies try to go the other direction and, you know, start first for their smaller customers and then try to add in larger sizes later and, you know, wanted to flip that model on its head and say, if we were building, you know, if we were building this from the ground up for larger women, what would we do and how would that look different? And so I think that's kind of why Panty Drop probably looks different than a lot of other underwear companies out there right now. Which is amazing. I, I have to say, I just, I'm just love this story because, I mean, here you are a mechanical engineering grad from MIT that doesn't shop disrupting women's fashion for plus sizes. And it, and I really think it takes that that curiosity to go ask the questions and to listen. And you know, you're not jaded by the experience in the fashion industry or how things were done before. So you really had, you know, one of the things that I hold dear is kind of this beginner mind, this deep curiosity to go out there and ask questions. And and you listened. And, you know, here you are. Now you've, you've, built, you've built this great company based on that. And so... You said you've pivoted a few times. What uh, you know? What would have been some of the the things that you sort of started out thinking you were going to do that have changed? Or you know, tell me, yeah. give me a few war stories there. Yeah, totally. Well, I think one really big pivot that we've gone through recently. So we started selling other brands. We you know, kind of created a what I call a stitch fix for underwear like shopping experience. So you come on, fill out your preferences, and then our team you know, kind of powered by technology, but our team would go and essentially curate a, you know, a a set of underwear that we thought matched your preferences. And, you know, we did a lot of work to find great brands and different styles. And, you know, what one, and that kind of started out of the hypothesis that we knew that our customers, our plus size customers, you know, wanted a shopping experience that didn't make them feel like they were different. So they wanted, you know, similar options. They didn't want to have to go to a separate section. I mean, in a physical retail location, like a separate section or a separate store in an online environment, the way that shows up is, you know, you go to the products page and you have to filter by size because you go in assuming that not all of the products that you see there are going to be available in your size. Cause usually it's only a couple products, a couple colors, And so we wanted to take that out and make sure that we had an experience that, you know, addressed what our customers were looking for in their underwear, but, you know, didn't make them feel like they had to go to a different place for it. So, and so we kind of created that experience on the front end and then behind the scenes, you know, we had all these different brands and styles and it was like really complicated, actually, (laughs) Um, a really complicated behind the scenes process that, that we were working on. And we, we learned learned a lot of through that experience the hypotheses we had about the shopping experience were spot on but more almost more importantly we realized that the products that were on the market that these other brands were making like still sucked <laughs> like wow. we got okay. a yeah. lot of you know sizing complaints fit complaints and we just started hearing the same things over and over again and you know we agreed you know we did a lot of fit testing with customers and kind of saw what they were talking about. We're like, yeah, we agree. This doesn't make any sense. And we basically were like, okay, I think, you know, we, we think we've learned the things that we need to have in a better, a better panty. And so we went to work at the end of 2019 to find a designer and start creating our own underwear line. Wow. And- that's, that's a big <laughs> shift. Yeah. So from, from taking third party. Yeah. Yeah. So we launched that last fall and 
it's been performing really, really well. And so it kind of, in, you know, when we first launched it, we essentially had these two things running side by side. We had our own line and then we had kind of our other subscription, you know, subscription experience. And it was pretty clear, you know, a month or two after launch that our own line was outperforming and, you know, kind of went through the thought process, analyzed the data, the customer feedback, and basically decided, okay, we're going to convert hundred percent to our own line. Like we're going to stop selling other brands, which in, you know, retrospect sounds like you know, it's <laughs> an easy thing to say. And like now it, you know, makes sense. But at the time it, it felt like a really big change and it kind of was, um, you know, cause we had built up a supply chain, we'd built up vendor relationships, you know, brought on team members to kind of fill these roles. We built a tech platform to manage it. And that was basically like at the end of last or at the end of 2020, we're like, and we're just going to say goodbye to all of that. <laughs> like we're going to like move on to this new reality. And I'm really grateful that we have such an amazing team of people that's really flexible and, you know, kind of really good startup people that you didn't feel emo- like, cause I think you, sometimes you can feel emotionally attached to or invested in those things. And it makes those decisions to just like move to, you know, move on a little bit harder, but um, oh, yeah. we really embrace that. And I think everyone on the team really embraced that. And um, yeah, we're kind of crafting a whole new experience this year. So it's been- wow. Yeah. You know, that's a big pivot. I, and I, um, I have some personal experience when I had the medical device business, we, our first product was an at-home male fertility test mm-hmm. and it went through a whole series. I mean, years and years. I mean, most of our investors came in on that product. In fact, all of them. And it basically became clear we needed to pivot to a new product. And there was just, we just couldn't quite do it. Like everybody was so emotionally bought in to the original concept. And even though it just wasn't working, it just, it was really difficult. Now, I mean, we had six years in and and, yeah. you know, the invest. So I guess one of my questions is, did you have any, were your investors supportive of that pivot? Did, did they did you get any pushback or you were, you were pretty supported? Yeah, no, I, I think we were pretty supported. And I think one of the reasons why this change went so well, I think within the team and within, with our existing investors was that we'd kind of been seeing this stuff for a while. And like, even within the team, you know, it was always a challenge to buy products, you know, to find the, the the styles that we thought would work best. And like our team was very, very close to customer feedback and they saw the, you know, they were seeing this stuff and experiencing those challenges of like seeing customer needs and trying to find the right styles for them. Like they, they were experiencing those things firsthand. And so when we, you know, they saw that, the, you know, they kind of participated in the process of designing the new style. And when the new style launched and they were starting to see the positive feedback, it, you know, kind of made sense. And I think, I think it was sort of similar, you know, in, in our investor pool as well, where, you know, people have kind of been following the journey, you know, uh, seeing what was going on, kind of seeing, you know, hearing what we were, we were telling like this, what we were hearing from our customers through to our investors. And so, you know, when we, you know, said at the end of 2019, we're going to build our own style, it made a lot of sense. You know, I think we had a lot of data, you know, qualitative and quantitative data to back that decision up and like why we chose to focus where we did. And I think ultimately they were, you know, excited about, about us owning, you know, having a more sort of vertical ownership of our product too, because it all, it enables us to be a bit more differentiated. And so I think there was actually a lot of support for, for that direction. Yeah, I think a couple of things came up for me around that. Uh, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate you as an entrepreneur is you communicate well with 
your stakeholders. You know, I, I get your updates and I'm sure all your investors get those updates. And that's not, you know, that seems like table stakes, but a lot of entrepreneurs miss that. They don't yeah. communicate and, you know, or sometimes they only communicate when they need to go raise the next round. Yeah. And what I heard from you is that, you know, the fact that you communicated all along the process, they were, they went along the journey with you. So when you made that decision, it wasn't, it wasn't a challenging, you know, choice for them. They already knew what was going on. Yeah. It's super, it's super, super important. I think we joined an accelerator. We did an accelerator program in 2019. And one of the things that the very first things that they had us do in that program was sit down and make a list of everyone that we should be sending our company updates to, which was pretty much, they were like everyone that you've ever spoken to about your business, like, <laughs> friends, family, coworkers, like coffee chats, like whatever. If someone wants to be taken off your list, they'll ask you to take them off the list and that's fine. You can do that. But the more people that you send this to, the more people that, you know, you get involved in your story, the more opportunities you have for help. And I think that's so true. And it's also, you know, people are, people like to kind of hear what's going on and like, you know, they want to, these are people that invested, you know, some time with you and they're, you know, they're, they're, they like to be kept involved and they like to be kept in the loop and hear what's going on. So um, it kind of helped me get over maybe some of the like jitters or insecurities around like, is anyone going to care about what I have to say? <laughs> um, yeah. just like, so they said, you know, make the list, like just and write it and start sending it out. And so I think that accountability was, was really important in getting us going. And then we get a lot of positive responses from those communications too. So that totally, I mean, you're, you're funded by mostly angels and maybe some, some seed funds, if that's, if I'm correct, right? So yeah, we have angel investors and then uh, Reno seed fund is part of our, um, they've invested in us. So yeah. That's well, and what I, what I was going to say is it seems to me, you know, angels, obviously they're in it to make money, but a lot of times, you know, they're there to give back and to participate in the, and be part of the experience. And I think a lot of people miss that. They just look at it, you know, some of the, some of the novice entrepreneurs look at that as just, oh, it's just a checkbook, but really people are engaged in the problem. I mean, in our medical device company, a lot of people had either direct experience with fertility issues or in the family. And so that, you know, it was, it really resonated with them. I mean, it may or may not be true in panty drop, but, but, you know, they do want to be part of that story. And I got to tell you, going to uh, the country club and saying, hey, uh, you know, I'm an LP and panty drop has got to be good for a few things. <laughs> a few laughs, yeah. you, know, you know, at least good conversation. You know. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, totally. One of the things that I, uh, you know, also for many years, uh, I just appreciate your, I guess I would say methodical nature of the way you built your business. You know, for years we'd run into each other and be like, hey, you know, you're going to raise any money yet? You're like, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And I'm like, okay, which is so different. Most people call me first day and are like, okay, I got an idea and I want to go raise, you know, $2 million. How do you help me? And so I just, you know, you were just so methodical about the process. I'm curious, can you talk to me a little bit about why you waited or, or kind of your strategy for how you raise funding for your company? Yeah. So I think part of that too was also, I knew how to think about going and getting customers and creating a prototype and, you know, gauging initial, getting an initial set of customers and iterating on that prototype. And that was like the world that I came from. And that was the world that I knew about. And so I was definitely a lot more comfortable doing that than I was going out and asking angel investors for money um, and like creating a pitch deck and, and, and things like that. Um, so it was, it was certainly easier for me to get started uh, in that direction. But also, you know, I, I, I think what you're hitting on is that investors want to see some traction. Uh, and traction 
can look a lot of different ways depending on what product and industry you're in. If you're building, you know, something that's really enterprise scale, you know, you it's going to take probably a long time to get people to give you and if it's got a high price point, like it's going to take a long time for you to get those initial contracts. So, you know, price points might or um, traction might be like the number of meetings that you had with decision makers at XYZ company and like, you know, and how you're continuing the conversation. And, and maybe there's like a letter of intent that like if you build this, they might buy it or, or something like that. Traction can look a lot different. You know, for us being a consumer company, traction is purchases. It's, it's you know, it's actually relatively easy to put up a website these days and get credit cards if you have a reasonable product and value prop that you can articulate clearly, like you can get orders. And so, you know, for us, and so for us, I think, you know, it, it made sense to, and also fundraising takes a lot of time. Uh, it's, sure, it's a big distraction. Yeah, it's a big effort. You know, I think your first round is going to take at least six months of pretty close to full-time effort on the part of whoever's doing that role. And that that's time that you're not spending building product, getting customers, selling, creating marketing campaigns and things like that. So, you know, I also was a solo founder. And um, so I kind of, you know, recognized that, you know, or I think for me made the kind of strategic decision that I was going to start by getting customers first. And then when I felt like I had, you know, validated my MVP, then I would go out and try to raise funding to grow the team and, and essentially start to grow the business from there. And, and so that was the decision, like that was sort of the, the initial decision point. You know, I think if I were doing it again, and I, and I also think it looks really different. Like if you're a first time founder, you, you probably don't have a lot of track record on this stuff. Like if you're a second founder, you know, you have people that you can go into and have a meeting and talk about an idea with, and they'll be like, yeah, cool. Okay. I'll give you hundred K or 25 K or 10 K or whatever, a million dollars. Depending how good you are and how much money you made before than before. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's, that stuff's a lot easier to do when you have the, the track record. And so if you're a first time founder, you know, people are going to be looking for, progress they're going to be looking for traction and you know did you actually build a product to kind of de-risk the investment um yeah well you know what's interesting as you said that you know i realized you you really statistically had two strikes against you right like a solo founder (laughs) those are tend to not get as funded and you know statistically i was just talking with Jeannie reith about this female founders are not getting the same amount of venture capital as their male counterparts. So, yeah. but I know by the time you came to the seed fund, it was a no-brainer. So, whatever, I mean, and maybe that, you know, maybe they can speak about it differently, but from my perspective and so, you know, with everything that had happened, it was pretty clear that like you were a shoe-in to get that funding. So, whatever you did to build traction momentum really worked. And, you know, whether that was, you know, not wanting, you know, not knowing how to raise funding or whatever you did, it, it worked. So congratulations on that. Yeah, I think it just takes time. You know, I think Reno Seed Fund invested in our second round. Um, so our first round was kind of a friends and family slash early angel round. And, you know, I think it just I think it just takes, you know, it, I think it takes time uh, where you because you, some people you have a chat with and, you know, they'll be ready to invest right away. But other people won't be. And that doesn't mean, you know, people kind of say a no is is a not yet a lot of times. Um, so, you know, we had people that said no on our first round that we kept in touch with. And, you know, a year later, we had made progress and they had kind of seen Sometimes the guys, I feel like sometimes people just want to like track your progress, right? Oh, and yeah. So, just want to see what happens. You know, yeah. we, and it, so we, you know, that's kind of also part of the value of communication, right? So we had shown, you know, okay, here's what we did and here's how we grew. And, 
we, we'd already been talking with a lot of those people. So when the second time, you know, the second round came around, we had more validation, we had more supporters. Um, and I think that conversation became a lot easier. So, yeah. And, you know, I think there is the stats on the gender disparities and if, you know, race disparities in, in venture funding are, are pretty stark. So that that's definitely a thing that you have to be aware of. It's a hard thing it's a hard thing to figure out what to do about though, because you're like, okay, so what does this mean? What, what should I do differently? And I think one thing that, or a couple of things that we found really helpful, you know, acknowledging, or just kind of knowing what we were up against and then thinking about how can we work around this? You know, how can we leverage all possible avenues of support that are out there? So there are more and more, you know, places where you, you know, support channels that are specifically focused on female entrepreneurs or people of color. And I would say that whatever opportunity you have to take advantage of that, you should. You know, we benefited. There was a free pitch prep, six-week pitch prep accelerator that we participated in that I think was really helpful because they focused um, just on female founders and they focused on, you know, public speaking, projecting confidence, knowing your numbers. And, you know, that was really, really helpful. Because I think sometimes, you know, the kind of people say like, oh, guys walk in, and this is a gender stereotype, which isn't true across the board, but guys walk into the room and they're like really confident and they like show this like the best case scenario and like yeah. female entrepreneurs walk into a room and they're like, here's what I know about my business. <laughs> and so like, how do you kind of, you know, how do you counteract maybe those, uh, your own um, default mechanisms or, or perspectives there so that you kind of reset your mental model. And I, and I say that with a gender lens, that doesn't need to have that. It could just be, you know, someone who's maybe more analytical is going to be a lot more focused on like the spreadsheets and the numbers versus someone who's a really good storyteller, you know, goes in and tells the great story. And so whatever gender you are, you, you're going to have things that you need to build up in your own skin, skill set as you, as you go into pitching. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, that's great insight. I think one of the, it's what you really said, one of the things you said that really struck me was this idea of like, just know the problem. Like, you know, in this case, the statistics don't look good, but it's like, okay, what do you do about that? I, you know, I remember when we were raising funding for Priya, it was clear that there, we weren't going to get venture funding from biotech investors in the Bay Area. They just didn't like consumer devices. And that was a great piece of news to find out early because we created a whole other strategy and we ended up raising $6 million from angels all over the country. And I didn't waste yeah. any time going down that path. And, you know, I, you know, it's a little bit different, but it's really about, you know, understanding the challenges in front of you and getting really clear with that and then not getting, letting that derail you. I think that was, you know, I've heard a lot of times in our ecosystem, you know, I hear this complaint, oh, our, our capital ecosystem isn't that great. Well, you know, that's true, but don't let that stop you. You know, like go figure out a way to go raise funding. It can be done. I realize like my, you know, it's my job to work on trying to diversify capital in the ecosystem. Don't use that as an excuse to not go fund your business. Like that's not the reason you're not funding your business in my opinion. So just know the problem, you know, and work it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. It's like, you know, you and we always had like a multi sort of multifaceted approach here. It's like, OK, we're looking at local investors. We're also looking at people outside the local community that focus in our industry, because like I think a lot of in the beginning, a lot of you know traditional Reno investors probably weren't thinking about consumer products. I think they had a preference to like software as a service companies. And so we looked a little different on that on that front as well. And so it's kind of like, yeah, I, I, you think you have to just as a founder, I feel like you should leave no stone unturned if you're thinking about capital. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's not to discount. I mean, there are really, there are real challenges facing, you know, um, 
entrepreneurs of color and women founder. I don't, you know, I don't mean that, but it just clearly you want to like know what's out there. And I was really happy to hear that you found um, a pitch program that was targeted for female entrepreneurs. I think that's great. And, you know, I just, and, and again, leaving no stone unturned, I, I, you know, I went to go raise money any place that they would let me go. You know, I would go back to my alma mater. I went to Canada and I always found a good, you know, there was always fun places to travel and fortunately it worked out, but um, yeah, it's, that's been, yeah. it's good, it's good hustle. advice. For, it's a total <laughs> hustle. So on that, what's, what was the decision behind being a solo founder? I mean, that's an interesting path to take too. It wasn't necessarily intentional. I just kind of never found the right person at that stage in the business. And, you know, kind of could, at least in the early stages, get to the next level with, you know, myself and maybe hiring some contractors or freelancers. And I, and again, I think that's not always the case for every business. And so, you know, so kind of just was like, okay, let me you know, again, co-founders like investors also want to see some traction. <laughs> so, you know, maybe Fair you enough. have, you, you know, maybe you have someone in your friend pool that you, you know, that, or, you know, previous coworker pool, you're like, that's the person I want to go start a company with. And, you know, I didn't have those at least in this opportunity. And so, you know, just kind of was like, okay, let me like go get some traction, you know, and then bring that to the co-founder search. And so, yeah, basically just kind of, you know, it took, I think it took a little longer, ended up building out the team. So while I don't have a co-founder, you know, I think we have a really strong team of leads that supports us. So we have our own, you know, our lead developer, we have, um, we just actually acquired a company last year and brought in the owner of that company is our head of product development and design. So she's, uh, she's got a PhD actually in uh, women's studies, weight psychology and apparel design for larger bodies. Wow. So she's like, she is like the expert um, in this, like in apparel design. And so I like, met her and was like, you're amazing. Like you need to join the company. Like I totally get you that you got this thing going on, but like, let's just bring that into panty drop and like, let's design together. And so kind of just focused on, okay, if I'm not going to have a co or I still need a team supporting me. Um, and then just where do I need expertise? And, you know, that kind of grew over time. Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it, I just uh, the, your approach to company building is is really remarkable. Uh, about how many how many people do you have on in your company right now? We have five full time and then a couple part timers. Yeah. And what's your has this been a good year for you? I mean, how has COVID affected your growth plans? Yeah, COVID been really, I think a lot of people have had really, the people's experiences are very bifurcated. We did pretty well being an online only direct to consumer business. You know, we were able to stay open through the pandemic and people are still wearing underwear. So (laughs) That's good. Thankfully. (laughs) I I might wear the same sweatpants seven days a week, but I am changing my underwear. So people were still buying. I love it. So I think we benefited from the shift to online shopping. You know, that's not necessarily been true across. And and also like within the category of something that people are still wearing, I, I think it's probably a really hard year if you were in like luxury handbags or luxury shoes or suits or formal wear, <laughs> or just like people weren't going to weddings and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, I think we had we had the benefit of, of being in a category that wasn't hit hard by the pandemic. So that's been, you know, positive for our business. I, I think, you know, being a rel- like a relatively early leader 
um, leading the team through the pandemic came with like a new set of, of leadership challenges. And, you know, I think that was certainly interesting to navigate because we, our team had been working together for a couple months. When the pandemic hit, we went into lockdown and we went remote. And, you know, I think we made that a really collaborative experience. And I'm really grateful for that. We have a really empathetic team, which is one of the kind of traits that we hire for. Um, so I think when we were and and like also the nature of our business where we we are still shipping physical product, we're doing our own fulfillment, meant that someone needed to be on site. So we were always going to have this sort of two different like people, two, like two different uh, work experiences in the company with those of us that work primarily on computers being remote and then, you know, someone being in the office pretty much every day. And, you know, how do we manage that? How do we still feel connected? How do we try to not make the person in the office feel like they're stuck, you know, doing something really different? And so we just kind of, you know, took a really collaborative approach to thinking about those things and talking about them and having really open conversations and brainstorms as a team. You know, now we, like everyone else, I'm sure, but we do a lot of video calls. We try to do, you know, kind of like weekly check-ins where we're celebrating things and kind of just taking those times where it's like, okay, we don't need to be talking about work right now, but we can just be hanging out. Um, yeah, but also human. not making that too, you know, I think if you have a Zoom happy hour every night from 6 to 8 p.m., then you're working till 8 p.m. every night. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Well, I mean, that's uh, a couple things came up. I mean, how do you hire for empathy? Uh, to pique my curiosity, I mean, do you have, um, is there a particular pre-screening or or is it just, a, is you just using your intuition or how, how are you doing that? A little bit of both. So one, you know, one of the things that we try to hire for is uh, empathy and like a customer focus. Um, and so I think you can tell, you know, when someone's really understanding, or I think there's a couple of ways that empathy shows up. Like one, how are they working with customers? So if you're hiring, if we're hiring for customer service, you know, can they, are they taking the time to really understand the customer situation? Are they empathizing with the customer and trying to solve it, you know, for, and then like, you can also see empathy in the way that people engage with their coworkers. So there's like that classic question, like, tell me about a time when you had to work with a difficult coworker, <laughs> right? And it's like a pretty standard canned, you know, interview question, but in someone's answer, you know, are, do they, are they, are they understanding that other person's perspective? Are they incorporating that in how they're trying to communicate with this person and, and work together? Or is it just like, I couldn't deal with, you know, <laughs> they like frustrated me. I was right and they were wrong. You know, so I think you can kind of see empathy come through in a, in a lot of different ways like that. We also ask people like, why do they want to work for us? And if they don't say something about the mission and what we're trying to achieve, it's kind of a non-starter. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Do you have, um, do you have defined core values for your business? Yes and no. We have some lightweight stuff written down and this is an area that will become a lot more important as we scale. So we kind of have like some feelings on it, but we haven't really formalized it yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to know when to do that. Well, you know, I have a good friend of mine, Darius, who runs another podcast, who wrote a book on on growing core values. I'll make sure and get you the book. But I, I have seen, it, it feels like the foundation on which to build, you know, your house. And it, my experience with that is, you know, you're still a small team, five people, the core values, you all live them intuitively at this stage yeah. at, you know, as you go much larger, they have to become more explicit and you have to be more intentional about how to create them. So, you know, I think you're still in that place, but I wouldn't wait too yeah. much longer. 
if I could yeah, give you some exactly. unsolicited advice. Um, yeah. I have a great book for I'll give you a book and we can we can chat about it. But uh, yeah, yeah, Darius is great. He's a good guy. And I'm sure he would love to have you on the podcast, his podcast too. He, he would be great help. So I guess that brings up another question, you know, leader leading during COVID, you know, scaling business, pivoting, you know, how are you doing your own self-care through this? I mean, you're, you're taking on a lot of roles, solar founder. I heard you're the hipster, you're the hustler and you're the hacker. Like that's kind of amazing, Julie. I mean, I, you know, at some point yeah. though, you don't scale like how, so how do you, how are you first taking care of yourself through all of this? And then, yeah. you know, how it, it, it like sometimes I do well in some periods I'm not doing well. I kind of depending on, on how it goes. One nice thing about being in the Reno Tahoe area during COVID is it's really easy to get outside. We have such great access to that, which you don't have if you're in a larger city. So, you know, going out, making sure I get you know, a workout in in the morning, go for a hike or, you know, now it's backcountry ski season. So, you know, just even doing like a short even if it's not very good skiing, just getting out there, getting moving uh, in the morning, I think really helps. Um, and then we we implemented, I mean, basically like we have a pretty flexible work schedule. So we generally do meetings between 10 and five. Uh, and like we could, you know, if someone needed to change that, we totally could. But, and like kind of along with that is like, if you don't have meetings and you wanna go outside, you know, go for a walk while it's sunny out, like, go while it's sunny out, you know, just let everyone know, Hey, I'm going for a walk or I'm going to do my workout. or I'm going for a hike and I'll be back in an hour or two hours or whatever. And so, you know, I think, I think you kind of just have to be flexible with things like that. Cause you just like, you can't sit in front of a computer as you like, do zoom for eight hours a day. Oh, it's exhausting. <laughs> like, yeah. It's exhausting. It's really different. I think like that's zoom calls are really different from in-person meetings. And so we just kind of try to like preserve that flexibility and, you know, let people take breaks when they need to. And like, I'm pretty upfront. Like I'm, you know, I'm going, I'm going skiing. Like I'll see you in a couple <laughs> hours. Like it just snowed. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I work on Saturday or sometimes I work like late in the evening or like from 6am to, to 9am because I'm going to go do something like that. But I think you kind of just have to take those moments because otherwise you kind of lose your mind on zoom. <laughs> oh yeah. No, you, it's, it's the mountain therapy, this, the, the powder therapy or, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. What about formal advisors? I mean, do you feel like you have a good group of people that are advising? I mean, do you have, you know, as you're, you're all entrepreneurs are navigating uncharted territories, but you know, you're, 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 you're growing along with your business. So what have you done to help yourself with your own personal development or personal leadership? Totally. That's super important. We, you know, we have a lot of people that we keep in touch with. Some of those relationships are formal and some are more informal, but yeah, just, you know, meeting a lot of people along this journey that have expertise in different areas. It's really great to be able to set up, you know, can I book 30 minutes on your calendar and just talk through this or an hour or something. So, um, you know, we've met great people locally and outside our local community that have been really, really helpful for that. And then I think, you know, one of the other things that I did a couple of years ago, as we were starting to hire more and add more people to the team is I got a leadership coach. <laughs> like, Cause I was oh, like, I'm, you know, I have experience managing a team, but I don't have experience managing functions and managing managers, which is like a whole nother level of management. <laughs> and I think it was a really good decision because yeah, you just, you have a lot of, you, you know, there's a lot of questions that come up about managing the team and communication and yourself. And, 
having a coach is really helpful. So I, I encourage all founders when they get to that point, like there's a point where it happens where all of a sudden you have like new team members and you're trying to figure out how to be a good leader. Um, I think it's a great resource. So. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I, you know, what I, I'd put that in the category of, I mean, obviously you're investing a lot of time in your business and your people, but you have to make investments in yourself. Yeah. And, you know, because you're like, if you, it's always, you know, I, I, whenever I get on an airplane, there's like this brilliant wisdom. It's like, put your mask on first before you put the mask on the person next to you, you know, your kids. Yeah. It's like, you, you know, you have to be, you have to take care of self before you can be there to take care of the team. So I'm just really glad that you found, you know, a, a good coach. And it sounds like you've got good support. I, you know, I know that you have always been very uh, connected and and you give back to the community too. I mean, one of the things that I love, I mean, in our, in our ecosystem, we're always about entrepreneurs leading. And so somehow you had time to launch a founder drinks. What, what was it called? It's called something. I can't remember the name. I don't know if it had a name. If it had or maybe it doesn't have a name. Okay, that's fine. So, we haven't done one in a while. I think COVID kind of made that a little bit difficult. But the, I think the beauty of that was it wasn't actually very much time. It was you know, we, it actually came out. It, I mean, basically it was a monthly happy hour where we would just pick a bar and go and hang out. And it was very informal. Um, so like we, you know, everyone paid for their own drinks <laughs> unless Brian was there and brought around, which was great. <laughs> so you just gotta have him on speed dial. You know. <laughs> yeah. But it was really, it was really lightweight and that made it really easy. And it kind of came out of, we went to the, there was an Angel NV concert, uh, concert <laughs> convention event in Las Vegas. And, you know, we got to, or I think, it, I don't know if it was on the plane or as we were getting off the plane, but all of a sudden, like four of us saw each other and we're like, oh, you're here, you're here, you're here. And, you know, kind of like, oh, we should, you know, we should keep getting together. And it was pretty easy to be like, okay, like, how about four weeks from now on a Wednesday at 530? And like, we'll pick a place. And it just kind of kept going from there. That's so Nevada. Oh, I mean, I'm sure that happens everywhere. But it's one of those things where it's just so much more meaningful when, you know, you're leading that for other entrepreneurs, right? Like that space to get out. I mean, you know, I mean, that you know, that's great. You have a coach. It's great. You have advisors, but it, it's, it can be kind of isolating to be the CEO and um, to be able Definitely. to connect with other entrepreneurs that are going through, you know, they're not competitive businesses, but they're going through similar situations. Like how do you hire? Mm-hmm. How are you dealing with COVID? How are you dealing with all that? So, you know, building that network, I think is super powerful and really beneficial. So I, I just appreciated you doing that because not, not everybody does that. So it may have been lightweight, but it was meaningful. I mean, we took note. Yeah. Yeah. It was really fun. And I'm excited for stuff, you know, COVID to settle down so we can go back to doing that. Cause I, I think people really, and maybe people are still doing it. I haven't really been going out, but yeah, I think it's really, it, I think it's good to have a mix of events. So some that are a little bit more organized and formal and maybe educational, and then some that are kind of just, okay, let's just go and hang out and there's no agenda here. Uh, so I think it's good to have a mix. And I think it was also really cool that the ecosystem had grown to a point where, you know, there were a lot of founders in a similar stage. And I, I think, you know, when I first moved here, it felt smaller. Um, so I think in the past, you know, four years, things have grown a lot and people have moved into the area and people here have started more businesses. And so I think the, the ecosystem's just, you know, 
become a lot richer and, and grown a lot more and, and it makes it easier to do those things. So, and I think it's only going to go up from here. I'm dying to get out and do stuff. I mean, I'm an extrovert. And so, I mean, I've had to, I've had yeah. to channel my inner hermit and it's been good. Like, I, I mean, I, you know, more time with family, it's been all good, but I definitely miss the founder dinners. And I think the biggest thing for me is there's a lot of new founders that have relocated here that aren't really integrated into the community because they're just doing what we're all doing, which is working from home. So I'm looking forward to getting everybody to be back together and, and see what that looks like. I, my guess is that we'll see more formal events and, you know, end of summer, early yeah. spring, you know, and we don't want to push too hard on that, but yeah, I'm dying to get back personally. I, you know, yeah, soon. So what's on the agenda here for the next year? I mean, you guys are at growing at a pretty fast clip, right? Like your, what's your growth rate like roughly? And where do you see <laughs> yeah. yourself in the next couple of years? Well, yeah, I should actually look at it. I was just putting this, I was just putting a slide together about this actually. But yeah, we more than doubled Q3 to Q4, which was really exciting. But then we underbought inventory because while we had some really optimistic, you know, growth uh, projections, we didn't buy inventory to support those because they still felt like they were kind of, ooh, who knows what's going to happen. And so we underbought inventory. And so in the past 12 weeks, I think we've been out of stock, you know, of our top selling, you know, top selling variant, top 10 variants for at least half that, if not more than half that time. Um, So that's not awesome. (laughs) Not awesome. No. Um, and you can totally see it. Like I was mapping out the trend and like when we're in stock, everything runs really efficiently and our marketing, you know, costs, customer acquisition costs is great. And then when we're out of stock, it doesn't look as good. So we've kind of been like increasing budget, decreasing budget and shifting to try to grow when we have inventory and then slowing down when we don't. So we don't just, you know, throw money into a black hole. That is Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what we're calling it now? (laughs) <laughs> we can give up a, a few other adjectives for it too, but no, I get you. It's it's the money pit. Yeah, yeah. And um, so so what's ahead for us? Because you know now we've kind of realized, and and just producing our own goods means that you know our factory has about seventy five day lead time. So you know by the time we realize we've sold faster, you know we can order, but it's going to be seventy five days. So what's ahead for us is, you know, we have a lot of inventory coming, so that's great. We have placed some big orders uh, for us, uh, which, you know, might still be too small, but at least we'll be a lot closer to where we need to be. And so, yeah, basically we are, I think the other thing we realized, you know, we launched the line with one silhouette, which is a cotton brief and three colors. And people bought all three colors <laughs> and then they wanted more, which is great. But, you know, in order to make more money, we need to launch more SKUs. Uh, so that looks like our spring color collection, which is launching next month. And our we're working on a lace collection for like late summer, early fall launch. We're going to be launching a new silhouettes, so a thong and a boy short as well. So just really building out the assortment and really glad that Deb is on the team to, to do that stuff because we clearly need it. And yeah, product development is, is, is now a really core part of our business. So getting more products to market faster, doubling down on the growth channels that have been working for us and yeah, just trying to hit escape velocity. So if we can hold the unit economics, we'll be in a really good spot. That's great. I mean, I just, I, uh, 
brings up so much for me, you know, when we were in the paddleboard business, just dealing with suppliers and lead times and challenges and port closures. And I mean, you throw yeah. COVID on top of that. You hear about these boats that are out sitting out there for two, three weeks yeah. and then yeah. tariffs. I mean, it is not <laughs> easy to deal with. You know, you're in a pretty efficient market for, I mean, for uh, textiles and things like that. But still, I mean, just the lead time and managing supply chain, I mean, there's just a lot to it. You have a complex engine of a business you know you've got all of the marketing customer and and then supply chain it's it's uh, that's a lot uh but congratulations i mean what an amazing growth i mean 50 percent month over month and you see obviously a lot of opportunity in diversification of product and uh, i'm glad that things are looking up for you what yeah, about uh from you. uh you know when do you see your team getting larger is it, or can you manage to us with the current team for quite a while yeah so I think one of the moves that we made last year was trying to bring on the people that we would need for growth. Um, so that was, you know, Deb coming on board. Um, we have a head of marketing who's with us part-time right now, but um, we'll go full-time when we close our next funding round. And so, you know, we've kind of got a lot of the people that we need and it's now just like making them, if they're not full-time, making them full-time and growing with them. Um, so I think probably we will probably do some more hiring, but uh, maybe not for at least six, nine months here. Um, I think we want to kind of get to an, another revenue level before we expand the team again, since we kind of did a little bit of that yeah. at the end of last year. No, well, and you mentioned escape velocity. What is that? Do you have a, do you know when you're, you're out of the atmosphere? I mean, do you know when you're clear or, or. Yeah. It, it, the, the answer is it depends, <laughs> but you know, I think there's a couple of ways to look at escape the way that I kind of think about it. What is scalable for us is essentially being break even on our first order, break even with cogs and then marketing costs. So if we can break even on the first order, and if people come back to buy again, then all of their subsequent purchases are free money, essentially, right? And that's a very scalable position to be in. Um, it took us a little while to tinker, you know, the funnel to get there. We're there now. And so I think that, you know, gives us a good place to grow from. At some point, you kind of hit, as you scale up, you hit levels and, you know, customer acquisition costs increase, or you need to expand, you kind of saturate one channel, you need to expand into a new channel. We're not there yet. We'll get there, but we're, you know, I think we're still actually quite a bit a ways away from hitting that. So like the goal right now is to grow as much as we can with the channels that we have kind of retain these efficient, unique economics. And so I think there's, so, so, you know, escape velocity is, you know, what do those levers look like? And then I think the other element of escape velocity is, so we're not profitable right now. <laughs> um, we lose money every month, as you would expect for someone at our sure. stage. That was yeah. definitely a strategic decision. So another kind of element of escape velocity is getting to cash flow positive, which you know we should be able to do um, you know, a couple, couple months here, sort of six, nine months. And I think that, you know, that puts us in a good position. I, I think it's a little bit different from how people think of software startups, but in consumer products, um, there is, there has been a shift to focusing on getting to profitability sooner. And I think it's actually a good thing for the industry, for the space as a whole, because it forces you to really understand these unique economic levers. And then, you know, when you are in that spot, you can choose to stay there if it makes sense for the business and, you know, stakeholders and, and whatnot. Or you can, okay, what's the next lever to grow? You know, do we want to invest in a new acquisition channel or, or a new distribution channel or, you know, a product line expansion? And then you can kind of choose to add in, 
you know, that, that, that additional level of funding. But I think it's a good sort of focus to be like, okay, we could run profitably here, but we want to do X, Y, Z and grow. Um, and so that's why we'll take some additional funding in the future. So that's kind of the goal right now. I just, you know, I just so appreciate the way you look at your business. I mean, it, it, it you truly look at it like an engine and how to tweak it and how to move it. It's, this is where all the mechanical engineering came in. This is the engineering in. background, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally, <laughs> and it's great. spreadsheets yeah. for management yeah. consulting. <laughs> Totally. And then when to know when to add rocket fuel, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, my have some experiences of this, which is like, this seems great. Let's just add more fuel to it. And then it just exploded midair. So it definitely you want to have the engine well understood, unit economics well understood, the channels well understood before you put a bunch of rocket fuel into it. But I, I'm confident that you or built maybe test a, like little bits of rocket fuel to see where you sure. go. And then like, do we want to keep adding fuel or do we want to like take a step back and readjust the trajectory? <laughs> So yeah, I feel like I had that. Like, like an all or nothing kind of thing. You can kind of check it, test, reset, yeah. check it, reset. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I had like a five gallon gas can of rocket fuel just pouring around and it was, <laughs> things just got on fire. And then I was running around, burning and rolling. Yeah. No, it, it wasn't quite that bad, but you know, no, I, I just really appreciate the way that you run your business. I, you know, the way that you have been like a, a role model and, you know, like a, and really just. Uh, you know, I'm just so happy you're in the ecosystem. It's thank you. You've always yeah. taken my call. Like you've always helped other entrepreneurs. You're definitely the you know what we're hoping to create in the community. You sort of personify that. So I just wanted to say thank you for thank you. for building your business here. It's been a real fun journey to watch, and I'm excited to see what's next for you. Yeah, I appreciate that, and obviously want to say thanks for all the support uh, that Edon has provided, that you provided, that other members of the community have provided because. Yeah, we wouldn't be where we are now without that support. Uh, and I think the community has done a lot of really amazing things in the past few years since we moved here. Like the number, I mean, we have a, a seed fund now. I know, amazing. Like really actively making investments. There's a lot more entrepreneurs, like bigger companies that have moved in, entrepreneurs that have exited companies that have moved into the area. So there's been a lot of really exciting development on that front. And Edon's been at the forefront of a lot of it. So yeah, thank you. Well, thanks. Well, thank you. Well, thanks for being an early adopter. You, you get to, you get to you know, benefit from being here early. Sometimes you get shot in the back, but here I think hopefully you've you know, been here and taken advantage of being I definitely moved early. to Reno before it was cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It was getting cool, but we ha we should actually have T-shirts made for that. I you know I've been yes. in Reno since before before it was cool. But you can only get one if you. Were here. <laughs> but yeah, we'll hold on the, to them, and we will. The test is: What did you hear at cocktail parties in the Bay Area when you said you were moving to Reno? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's funny. Because I, I eventually, I yeah, I changed it. I was like, I'm I'm moving to Tahoe, and then people were like, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've, I got, I mean, I moved in 99 and people just thought I was insane. So, yeah. and maybe I was a really early adopter, but that, but I did move to Tahoe, but yeah, it's, it, you know, I just, for the longest time I thought, you know, I either have a secret about this place or I'm crazy. And then I couldn't decide which one was true. And now finally I think, okay, well, yeah. I'm probably not as crazy as I thought I was. I just could see it way before everybody else, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> that's what happens when you're a front runner. True. True. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you've got a lot going on in your world. I just really enjoyed the conversation. Best of luck to you on the next uh, success. And I look forward to seeing you at a cocktail or founder dinner in the very near future or the soonest COVID safe future we can create. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Thanks.